Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. And um, and so we're going to start here today with, uh, and let me open it, but we're going to start with Judas' reaction. Um, he's kind of had enough. And it's interesting, the Gospels don't really tell us, they don't give us the motivations. They don't tell us what's going on in Judas's head, because um, that isn't really the goal. And it's quite possible the apostles don't really know. You know, maybe this is one of these things that that they look back on. And they say, you know, we don't we don't know where Judas was coming from either. You know, maybe they're really till the day they die, just kind of confused and shocked by what he does. So they don't really tell us. Um, there's a lot of ways you can speculate. Um, the fact that Judas is so remorseful almost immediately does make you wonder um, if part of his motivation was actually to get Jesus to show his hand. Maybe he never thought Jesus would actually die. Maybe he he just thought for some reason Jesus was being slow and this would push him forward. That's a, that's a somewhat generous uh, interpretation of his motives, but we have no idea. Um, all we're told about is he gets paid for it. He doesn't seem to care about the money much in the end, but maybe he did initially. Uh, we don't know, but we do just know what he does. And um, that's where we're starting with. We're actually on Mark 14, uh, verses 10 and 11 is where we're beginning. Now, is that, is that jive uh, with uh, those of you who are following along in your chronological Bibles? Have I skipped anything that you're aware of? Nope, I got a thumbs up. Good. Um, who can tell us, since Lorraine's not here, what page we're on in the Green Bible there? 1371. Thank you very much, Meredith. Okay, so 1371. And it says this, then Judas, oh, by the way, so we are on Wednesday, right? So Tuesday, Tuesday evening was the, um, was the anointing. And then the Wednesday starts after sunset. And what we're about to read might happen Tuesday night uh, before sunset, or it might happen after sunset. We're not clear. It might even happen the next morning. It really doesn't say. And the markers get a little hazy. And we're going to see tonight the one reason or one of the reasons that it is it, it starts to get almost impossible to determine the chronology at this point. And I told you when we started this that I was leaning towards Wednesday as the crucifixion. But as we've walked through the timeline, I think I might have actually flipped back to Thursday because I can't figure out how to get everything in that's about to happen on Wednesday. Um, but my biggest conclusion is that God is not being very clear in the chronology. And so maybe it doesn't matter a whole lot. Um, but we will talk about one of the things that comes up that confuses the chronology because it's important for other reasons and to, to maybe kind of understand what might be happening. So we'll get there in a second. But before that, we have this. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Again, not clear if Judas extracted money, if he went and said, I want money, or if he just went and volunteered, and they were like, great, we'll even pay you for it. It's not clear. Uh, again, we just know what he's doing, that his intention is to, they're looking for a way, one of the last things we read two weeks ago was that they were looking for a way to get Jesus before Passover, before the Festival of Unleavened Bread started. Um, and we're going to talk about those two terms here in a second. Um, but they were looking for a way to get him before the big the big holidays started. And um, and so now here comes Judas and he just drops into their lap. They, they can't figure out how to get to Jesus. They're afraid of doing it when the crowds are all around. Um, so they're trying to figure out how to get to him. And now Judas shows up and says, I'll make it happen. And it says they delighted to hear it. They're like, great. Our opportunity has arrived. Matthew 26, same story, says, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, 
what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? Okay, so I take it back. It does tell us he did extract a little something. Um, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Luke 22, verses 3 through 6. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. And they were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. So Luke does give us at least sort of the spiritual dimension of motivation. Obviously, Judas is, is deceived and he is persuaded by Satan. Um uh, to go do this. And so we, we, but we knew that we knew there was a spiritual dimension to this for sure. Um, and Luke kind of mentions it specifically. Mark 14, 12 through 16 says this on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Okay. This sentence, this entire sentence is a problem. It's a problem chronologically for some really simple reasons. Regardless of anything else, anywhere else in Scripture, this sentence doesn't make sense according to what we understand about the festival of unleavened bread and the Passover. And it's for this reason. Traditionally, and more than traditionally, according to the law in the Old Testament, the festival of unleavened bread is supposed to start the day after Passover. So you're supposed to have Passover, and Passover really happens in the evening. And then that very next day for us is when the festival of unleavened bread begins. So for it to say here that on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, is a sentence that actually isn't true. It wasn't customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb on the first day of unleavened bread. They already should have had Passover if this is the first day of the festival of unleavened bread. Furthermore, it goes on and say, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Well, the other problem is, if this is the first day of unleavened bread, the first day of the festival of unleavened bread is a Sabbath. It's a special Sabbath. Regardless of what day of the week it is, it's considered Sabbath. They're not supposed to be making any preparations. So it doesn't make sense they'd be making preparations for Passover because it should have already passed. And it doesn't make any sense that they would be making preparations, period, because it's a Sabbath day. So this sentence, which appears in three of the four Gospels in mostly this way, is already a chronological nightmare. As you read it, you're thinking, so what the heck, what day is this? If this is before Passover, it can't be the first day of unleavened bread. If it's after Passover, why are they preparing for it? So it just is a very, very confusing sentence that, that uh, again, commentators wrestle to understand what exactly is happening here. And there's, uh, I'll add one more thing, which we'll, we'll see in a little bit. The other difficulty with this, aside from that, which we'll talk about why that might be the way it is, it, there's a couple answers, obviously, to that. But the other issue is that John, he says later, he says after their meal, so after the Last Supper, when they get turned over to Pilate, John says this, then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor, that being Pilate. By now, it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleansness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So John says, after the meal, which we're about to read about, which is described here as preparation for the Passover, after the meal, they take Jesus to Pilate, and it says that they wanted to deal with him because they didn't want to be dealing with him during Passover. So again, 
really confusing. How do these gospels line up? John says a little bit later, says when Jesus is with Pilate, he says straight out, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. So if Jesus is with Pilate on the day of the preservation for the Passover, how is it that right now the apostles are saying, hey, uh, it's time to prepare for the Passover. What do you want us to do to prepare? So all of that is simply to say, one of the reasons we don't know whether Jesus died on Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday is because these are very confusing time markers and signals. Yes, Meredith. Um, is the Passover always before the Festival of Unleavened Bread? Well, that's one of the questions we're going to get to. According to the law, it was supposed to be. Okay. Yeah, it was Passover was supposed to happen. And then the very next day, the, the Festival of Unleavened Bread, which is a seven day festival, begins the day after Passover. What does what is that supposed to celebrate? Same thing. It's it's connected to the Passover, which is one reason it happens right after it. But it's not the same thing. Oh, so well, and I guess, yeah, with unleavened bread, like leaving Egypt. OK, I, I just didn't know if they always lined up or not. You got it. Yes. Yes. So again, you're actually asking a more subtle question than you know, and I'll, I'll explain that in a second. But the the law, the way it was set up was it was supposed to always be together. They were supposed to go Passover, then Festival of Unleavened Bread. Um, but that's actually one of the that's actually one of the ways that that we can deal with this question. So let's talk about Passover traditionally um, uh, leading up to Jesus' time and see if we can come to any understanding of why these these times don't line up. And there's a couple things that we do notice. So the first thing is, and you guys, this is one thing you guys will have noticed because you went through the Old Testament with me. You, you probably, when I say this, you'll say, "Yeah, that makes sense." We kind of saw that. And that's that Passover was not well followed in the Old Testament. In other words, there seemed to be lots of years where they just skipped it all together. Maybe hundreds of years where they skipped it all together. They didn't do it. And you might remember that with Josiah and Hezekiah both, there was this moment where the Passover was reinstituted. So remember that they were good kings and they, they found the law. In each case, Josiah and Hezekiah both, they like found the law, which had been lost. And they found it and they read it and they said, oh my gosh, we're supposed to be celebrating the Passover. But you might also remember that when Hezekiah did it, he moved the Passover. Now, he may not have intended to move it permanently, and maybe he didn't move it permanently, but we know that he did because you'll remember there's even this like this, this mention in the scripture that it was okay with God that he did that because he was just trying to get them back on track, and that wasn't the right time for Passover, but, the, but it seemed appropriate to do as an act of forgiveness, of repentance rather. And so God didn't, didn't punish Hezekiah or have any concern with them doing it at the wrong time. So we do see in history, Passover was skipped a lot of times, and then when they did do it, they didn't always do it at the right date. They didn't do it when they were supposed to do it uh, technically. Um, the other thing is that Hezekiah and Josiah, the other thing about them is that when they reintroduced the Passover, they did it at the temple. Now, what's interesting is Passover was something, again, in the in the law, when God introduced it, it was something that was supposed to be done in their houses, that each family was supposed to celebrate Passover in their household. Um, and that's when they did it, how they had done it. But when Josiah and Hezekiah read the law and see that the Passover has not been done, they both institute it in the temple. They have them do it in the temple. And I think the re we don't know the reason for that. But again, God doesn't seem to have a problem with it. So I think it's reasonable to speculate the reason they did that was to make sure it was done right. I mean, the people hadn't done it for years. 
they weren't doing it. So maybe both in case of Josiah and Hezekiah, they were like, well, we could just tell people to go home and do it. But number one, do they know how to do it? Number two, will they do it? Number three, will it mean anything? Because we haven't consecrated all this. So so they, so they, in each of their cases, they consecrated the temple. They invited people back in to do the Passover, and they did it in the temple. And so one of the things that's interesting about that is that there's historically some question after that point that maybe the Passover was done actually twice, that when it was done in the, that after that, that it was done in people's homes, and then it was also done in the temple. And that people who could get to the temple, because remember, we start seeing exile and we start seeing uh, Jews being separated. So maybe what it came down to is if you could get to the temple, you went and did Passover at the temple as kind of a communal thing. And if you couldn't get to the temple, then you did it in your home. And one of the reasons we historically kind of know this to be the case is there is a, a document that talks about a situation where they did Passover in the temple. It mentions that. But then it also mentions that they did Passover and they sacrificed this incredible number of animals. And it's such a large number that historians really doubt that that happened in the temple. And so they're saying, yes, they did Passover in the temple, but they must have also been doing it in their homes for them to sacrifice as many animals as they sacrificed because they couldn't have done that many animals all in the temple. It's just not physically possible or logistically feasible that the priests were able to do that. Okay, so all that is to say the the Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread were kind of wishy-washy throughout the Old Testament in terms of their application. So it wouldn't be that by itself, and I'll add a few more in a second uh, ideas in a second, but that by itself leads us to Jesus' time where we might say, we don't really know when the Passover and when the Festival of Unleavened Bread are taking place. We know when they're supposed to, but given the level of corruption at the time and given how weird it's been over history, it's possible that things aren't happening at the same times they were supposed to happen anyway. Uh, Meredith, yes, you had your hand up. So, like, did God initially, I mean, I know it's not initially, but after that, when they celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread, like when they actually got in the land, was that supposed to be at the temple? Or was that also then just supposed to be in their homes? And what would they do for that? Probably in their homes, because mostly what they were supposed to do is make sure there was no leaven in their house for seven days. That was a big part of it. So that's something that obviously applies in the home and not at the temple. So there, so yeah. part of, even when they talk about they talk about preparations for the Passover, when they talk about preparations for the unleavened bread, what, what they mean is they're supposed to sweep, literally sweep every corner of the house. There's like a big ceremony to the sweeping because they're supposed to make sure there's no leaven in the house. And then they're supposed to have a Sabbath on the first of the festival week and the last of the festival week. And then in between, they're just never supposed to bake with a, with leavened bread or use any leavened bread. And there's, there's probably some other things there that I don't know because I'm not as familiar with the whole rituals. But that's basically what was happening. So it was mostly a family household kind of thing you would be doing. Um, so and, what would the the first what would the first day of unleavened bread, the festival, what would that Sabbath look like? It would have been a Sabbath day. They wouldn't have done any work, um, and they okay. probably would have had a meal that they prepared the day before, or maybe they uh, literally ate leftover Passover meal. I have no idea, but that's a, okay. that's a speculation some commentators have made. Um, so that kind of thing, yeah. Um, okay, and then they were allowed to do work and go on with their lives normally, except for the 11, like the rest of the week until the last day. Right. Only the first and the last one were Sabbaths. The rest, I'm sure there were other things they were supposed to do, but they were allowed to work and probably did work, um, you know, because as farmers, it's hard to take a whole week off. So, um, 
The other thing that happens is during the Babylonian exile, we do know that this is where the Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread seems to have gotten merged a little bit. That there may have been a period there where they were doing the the Passover was done on the first day of unleavened bread and not done the day before. Um, and, and, and there's some, again, some historical records to suggest that might be the case, but we don't actually know that for sure. Um, so again, all that is simply to say that we know that what's supposed to happen is you have the Passover, then you have the feast of unleavened bread, but that's all gotten confused. And at the time of Jesus, it's hard to say with certainty what's happening. And given the, this statement that's made, that just adds to the confusion. However, if you do assume that they are actually still doing it in the order they're supposed to, if they are having Passover and then the festival of unleavened bread, if we leave out the John conundrum for a second, because again, John says for sure Passover doesn't happen until after the Last Supper. But but what you do, what, there's another possibility here in the translation, and that's that it turns out that the phrase on the first day, so it says on the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread, it turns out that you can reasonably, now there's a reason that some of the translators don't, or most of the translators even don't, but it is it is not an unreasonable translation to take the phrase, it's literally a word for first, um, that, that we're taking for first, saying on the first day, it's not unreasonable for that to actually be translated as something that really means before. So it might actually read before the festival of unleavened bread, rather than on the first day of unleavened bread. And if you accept that translation, it actually resolves the whole thing. And I like Occam's razor kind of answer. If, if there is a reasonable translation, which makes things simpler, I, I tend to, I, again, I'm not a translator, and so I would I would you know hear the other arguments against this. but but if there is a translation that's reasonable, it's not outrageous, and it makes everything simpler, I tend to think that's a good thing. Um, and so I tend to like that 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 maybe what this actually says is before the festival of unleavened bread, they asked about preparations for the Passover. That would actually make sense because it would mean the Passover was before the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And so before that happens, they're talking about the Passover. And before the Passover, they're going to make preparations for it. So all of that lines up a little bit better. Plus, it does actually fit with John because then it says they're then when they're having their last meal, it's before the Festival of Unleavened Bread. It could even be before the Passover because they're making preparations. That doesn't mean Passover is right then. It just means they're getting ready. It does line up then with John, who says the Passover happens the next day. If that's the chronology, what it means is that we have the Last Supper, then we have Passover, then we have the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And whether that's Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, whatever that is, that chronology also makes sense in light of comments like, that they didn't want to that they wanted to get the body off the cross before the sabbath but then at the same time once it was in the grave they didn't want to they couldn't go anoint him because it was still sabbath and then they went on sunday so it does actually explain some of the whole multiple sabbath questions that come up later so i that's i just want to throw that in chronology is already weird but i think if it is translated before the festival of unleavened bread it helps it actually helps quite a bit yes meredith so but that would make it that the first two days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread would be Sabbaths. True. And and if you think, and if you think, and the last one, but that's because you just happen to have a normal Sabbath in there. So any festival of unleavened bread. Oh, that okay. 
Yeah, any festival of unleavened bread that doesn't have a that doesn't start on a Sabbath is actually going to have three Sabbaths, right? Because it's going to cross a normal Sabbath in there. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Yep. Um, the other thing to throw into all this as we read through these these things and you see these terms is that because of what happened during the Babylonian exile, it is possible that the term Passover became a synonym for festival of unleavened bread and vice versa. They shouldn't be. The Passover is a meal. The festival's unleavened bread is seven days. But you can see how it's possible that they kind of got merged in common language. And so when John says before the Passover, he might mean before the festival. Might not mean before Passover at all. Or when when they say the festival of unleavened bread, they might mean Passover. So that, that's another thing that just adds to the confusion is possibly they're just doing it in different ways. One other thing you'll look to, and I don't want to get into the weeds too much. I know we already have. But I'll just throw it out in case you run into it someday. Some commentaries point out also that the Pharisees operated their Passover on a different calendar than some of the Jews did. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. It has to do with other larger calendar changes, as well as different beliefs that the Pharisees had about when the exile was, all sorts of things. Um, so that's also possible that John might be referring to a certain date or calendar for Passover and Matthew, Mark and Luke might be referring to a different date for Passover based upon two different calendars, one being sort of pharisaical, one being sort of Roman. Um, that's a possibility too. throw that all out there to say, I have no idea what day Jesus was crucified on. So when I told you I knew when it was, I lied. Actually, I never told you I knew when it was, but I'm just affirming it gets very confusing. But more than that, even just the chronology of how this plays out, what meal are they even having? I don't know, but I'm I it does seem less and less likely that it's actually the Passover meal. But there are statements made by Matthew, Mark, and Luke which make it sound like it is. So I'll let you deal with how how you do with all that. But but there you go. There's the confusion for the day. So here we go. Let's let's go on from there. So they said then, and I'll read it with the potential other translation, but other than that, it's all the same. It says, before the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, that would make sense if it's the Passover is before the festival. Um, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat this Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready, make preparations for us there. So it sounds like they're getting ready to eat the Passover meal. That's absolutely what it sounds like Matthew, Mark, and Luke are saying. Um, this whole thing, too, is very cloak and dagger, right? It, it's, uh, you know, I, I, and I go two ways with it. One is it could just be miracle, right? It could just be like Jesus is like, here's what's going to happen because I know what's going to happen. Just go ask him. But I actually think, again, here, a simpler explanation is that he's already worked this out. He's already talked to a guy and said, I want to use your upper room with my apostles. I'll send them to you. When they come to you, let them in. And it could just be that simple. But either way that this is happening, the disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus told them. So they prepared the Passover. Okay. Now, Matthew, on the, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, same problem, same sentence. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, remember, borrowed from each other. So probably this is literally the same sentence. So the same resolution applies. It could just say, before the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And he replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him. The teacher says, my appointed time is near. 
I am going to celebrate with the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. So here's where I have another thought. Um, given, and, and this is because I'm trying to reconcile it with John, who says the Passover doesn't happen until after the Last Supper. It does occur to me that it's possible, given the extraordinary nature of what's happening in history here with Jesus, that Jesus actually knows he's going to be dead before the Passover, but he really wants to celebrate the Passover with the apostles. And that might explain a couple of statements he makes. One is coming up, and I'll point it out to you when you get there, but the other is here. When he says to the person, my appointed time is near, why is he having them say that to the person who's preparing Passover? What, what does that have to do with the preparation of Passover? Nothing inherently, unless what Jesus is saying is, look, I'm not going to be here for the Passover, so I want to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house now. I want to do it a day early because I won't be available. And given how much movement there's been of Passover with God's approval throughout the Old Testament, it doesn't seem impossible to me that given the extraordinary nature of what's happening, that Jesus might actually say, we're going to have the Passover on a non-kosher time. It's kind of like him saying, look, I got I got anointed with perfume. Maybe that's not normal, but although it kind of was, but maybe that's not normal, but I'm going to die. Things are different because I'm about to die. And this could be one of those things. I'm not going to argue this strenuously, but I think it does, again, at least gives us an explanation for why this meal might look like a Passover meal, be called a Passover meal by Matthew and Mark and Luke, and yet by John be treated as if it was the day before the Passover. Yes, Meredith. So then in that case, then Jesus would have actually died on the day of Passover. Correct. Okay. Well, but, I was kind of thinking, or, or, not that this yeah. proves anything, but I was kind of thinking too, I mean, like, he's like, this is my body, this is my blood. I was thinking if it was the Passover, it would seem like he would actually take the Passover lamb and say, like, this is like me. I'm being sacrificed, you know, for you. But then that makes sense if he's like dying. That's so, actually, I mean, it can make sense symbolically the other way too, but it, it just seems a little odd to me. No, you're right. And that is a point that some commentators make is that there's nothing actually about this Last Supper, which says that it's Passover, except that they keep using the word Passover. But they point, they do point that out, that the actual meal itself, they don't do the Passover rituals as near as we know. Maybe yeah. they, it's not recorded. They don't eat the Passover lamb. Maybe they do, but it's not recorded. Yeah, what you pointed out is true. That that it doesn't, it doesn't, we would never assume it was a Passover meal if if frustratingly Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't seem to say it was. But if they weren't saying that, we wouldn't have assumed that. And yes, there is something elegant. Again, I don't want to force this for sure into a theology, but you have to admit there is something elegant about the Lamb of God dying on Passover, right? There is something very orderly about that. Um, which makes sense and doesn't happen if the Last Supper is Passover. Again, that is not, that's not proof. It's an interesting thought. Though. Yeah. Well, it would seem weird to like compare himself with this bread. I mean, I guess not because he has used that analogy, but, but the bread instead of the lamb. Right. Yeah. Hey, did you turn on your video? Cause you had a thought. I, uh, Yes. I uh, once attended a Christian Seder dinner and the rabbi who was giving it told us, and I'm not sure that it's scriptural or not at the moment, but 
they said that Jesus and the Passover lamb were both uh, killed at the same time, three o'clock in the afternoon. Interesting. Interesting. Um, or yeah. nine o'clock in the morning or yeah, nine o'clock in the morning, wh whatever time it was. This is what so, I was yeah. thinking. Yes. It's the third hour of the day or the sixth hour of the day. Now I'm confused too, but whichever it is, unfortunately, we don't know if that's morning or afternoon. That can go either way. Right. So as far as you're not sure if it's nine or three, that's actually no one is. <laughs> no one is. Um, but uh, that's good. That's interesting. I've also been to Christian, you know, satyrs and and we like that connection to that symbolism. Um, uh, but uh, when we do them often, I've, I've never heard that. That's really good. The rabbi said that because often when we do Christian Passovers, what we do is we talk about it and say at the Last Supper, that was Passover. Well, if it was, then Jesus definitely didn't die on Passover because there's because he didn't time after that <laughs> oh yeah before he died the whole symbolic thing of the passover lamb and jesus and the veil i just yeah yeah all coming the, together there this is all further confusing because we don't reckon our days the way they do so right so that also is confusing because you could say in a sense you know if if, if the passover meal happens after sunset then the whole next day is still Passover. So, mm -hmm. so it could be that way too. So it, it just, yeah, there's uh it gets a little. Oh yes. It, it uh, does feel to me like if God wanted to be clear about this, he would have done a better job. So I think it's, I, I think it's okay <laughs> that we don't exactly know. I always attribute this section to God's sense of humor. <laughs> yeah maybe so all right so luke 22 luke gets even more confusing luke says then came the day of unleavened bread on which the passover lamb has to be sacrificed well that's just nonsense according to again our understanding of what the passover and, and unleavened bread are so is he just confusing or not confusing but it is the vocabulary of the day such that saying festival of unleavened bread is the same as saying Passover? Is it that the festival itself has now become seen as an eight-day festival with the Passover being the first day? I, I don't know, and we don't know. That's one possibility. However, there is another possibility in translation again. In the same way, it is not unreasonable to translate on the first day as before. This phrase, then came the day. This is an even easier one. Day, and, and by the way, this causes trouble from Genesis to here, the, how you translate the word day, right? There's all sorts of arguments about whether the day in Genesis is a 24-hour day or not, whether the Hebrew word for day simply means 24-hour day. The problem is almost nothing in scripture or in ancient languages means 24-hour day because people didn't think of days the way we think of days anyway. You'll notice even the Hebrews, their day starts in the sunset and goes to, to sunset. It is 24 hours, uh, by the way, but it goes sunset. I mean, if, if you hit exactly right on the sunsets, I suppose, but it goes sunset to sunset. That's it's They don't think of these things quite the way we do. All that is to say the word day here in the Greek, it is not strictly what we would think of as a 24 hour period. It can literally here be translated as time. Then came the time, then came the season, then came the festival. So it could just be that Luke is saying, now we've entered sort of the Christmas season, not, not, literally, but like we might say, Christmas. You know, it's Christmas time. It's the time for Christmas. Well, we could mean Thanksgiving. And if you're in a department store, you could mean Halloween because Christmas time can really extend a long, long way back. 
So it's kind of like that. He's saying, then came the time of the unleavened bread, which, by the way, we all know is also when Passover is and when the lamb is sacrificed. So Luke is definitely giving us room here to think that this is all he's saying is this is in that that era. This is in that season. This is in the festival of unleavened bread season. But he isn't necessarily saying specifically on this day. And it seems unlikely he is, because again, if he is, he's kind of wrong about the Passover lamb being sacrificed on that day. So I think he's just saying this is the season. Okay. Again, you can do what you want with these, but these, to me, if the translation is reasonable and makes the answer simple, I, I'm, I tend to lean that way. Doesn't mean it's always correct, but it makes sense to me to do that in this case. But you can you will you will suffer none of your faith if you disagree with me here all right then came the day or the season of unleavened bread on which the passover lamb has to be sacrificed jesus sent peter and john saying go and make preparations for us to eat the passover where do you want us to prepare for it they asked he replied as you enter the city a man carrying a jar of water will meet you follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house the teacher asks where is the guest room where i may eat the passover with my disciples he will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. Okay, John 13. It was just before the Passover festival. All right, how do you like that? John is obviously conflating the two. <laughs> because here he's just going to call it the Passover festival. So there you go. It's all a little mushy. All right. It was just before the Passover festival. Again, I read that to mean uh, I read that to mean very much that he's saying like Luke, it was the season of Passover. It was the season of the festival. So he says it was just before, but he says it was before. And again, he sticks with that. He, he's he's consistent in his own chronology. You just have to line him up with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress. Notice John is not at all saying that this is the Passover meal. He's saying it was before the Passover festival. It was before the season, and they're having an evening meal. So if you were to just read John, you would, again, never think that this meal was Passover. So either he's just using a different calendar, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke all along have simply been saying that it's the season of Passover, which is what John also says, and then saying that for some reason Jesus wants to eat the Passover meal with them before he's gone. And the only way that happens is if he's seeing this meal as a Passover meal, even though it's not on Passover. To me, that at least all makes sense. They fit that way. You can, I'm sure you can come up with other ways to make it work because there are commentators who have all sorts of different ways to make it work. All right. But here we are with John. He says he knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. So having got all that kind of chronology stuff out of the way, now let's really try to emphasize what's happening here. Jesus in his humanity, this is a big moment. He's going to leave. He's he's probably very conflicted. On the one hand, he's going back to the Father, which is probably really exciting. You know, he's gonna he's gonna reclaim his his godhood status, which is probably really exciting. He's gonna bring the salvation to humanity, which is of course really exciting. We're told for the joy set before him, he did this. But he's also leaving his friends. He's leaving his closest friends. He's leaving his closest human companions for the last three years, and some of them for his whole life. Some of them are his brothers. So he's he's getting ready to 
to to to leave them. He's worried about them. I think in if as long in any way that it's fair to use that for Jesus. I know he knows what's going to happen, but he's concerned about them in one sense, and you see that come out. He's also not eager to feel pain and death. No one is eager to feel that. And in his humanity, he isn't. And we see that clearly in the garden. So this is kind of the poignant moment we're at. So this is, whatever meal this is, it is important to Jesus. It is, you know, saying the Last Supper, it is his last meal. It is his last fellowship. It is his last sort of good sort of unencumbered, I mean, it's it's burdened, but in one sense, unencumbered time. No one's no one's arrested him yet. Nothing has happened yet. He knows it's going to. And he's feeling very heavy. And he's feeling very emotional, I think. Um, and the apostles know something's happening. Jesus has been upping the ante and kind of increasing the urgency and talking about the kingdom more fully. And so they're probably a mixture of excited and concerned too. And they know that they're in all in danger. They know that the fair, it's not any secret, I don't really think, that the Pharisees want to catch him and kill him and 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 at the at least imprison him, but probably kill him. They've been encouraging Jesus to be careful. And here it is. All right. So it says he knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So he's just, this is just he's here he is. He loves them. He's just, you know, and he's gonna leave them. And that's hard. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Now, I, I, I think there's a couple of really important and very poignant notes here. One is, again, he loves them. So he's doing this as he does everything with multiple motivations. One is he's going to teach them something, but it's not a cold teaching. He also loves them. So he also wants to do this for them. He wants to serve them. Um, and he wants to teach them about service because that's going to be really important. And he wants to give them a hint that what's about to come is something he's doing willingly and not something he's being forced to do. So the, this whole movement, is it's, it's just rich with sort of affection and love and concern. At the same time, it also says, I love the fact that it says he knew who he was. He knew where he was going. He knew what was happening. There's no confusion. You know, I, I can't answer all the questions about did Jesus as a baby know what he was going to do with Jesus as a man? You know, how does a baby understand he's God? I, I won't even get at it because I have no idea. But I do think it's clear that at this point in Jesus' life, he knows. He knows he's God. He knows what's happening. He knows what he's going to do. There's no confusion for him about this. And, and I love the fact that it says he knows he came from God and was returning to God. He, and, and again, he is God, but he laid aside, as Philippians says, his deity. And he's about to reclaim that deity. So he knows he's God. He's not washing their feet because he thinks he's unworthy. This is so important. He's not washing their feet because he thinks he's not as good as them, or he thinks they're better than him. To put it bluntly, he knows he's superior to them. He knows that he's better than them. He knows in every way that he is infinitely superior to them. And because he knows that, he decides to serve them. And that is such an important and rich message for us because we see submission and we see service as such an indication of inferiority that to see Jesus, God of the universe, say, because I'm God, I'm going to serve you. Of course, it matches his whole plan in the gospel to die on our behalf. That's the kind of God he is, that he sees his responsibility to us, which is weird. But he sees that in authority, that's what it means to him. He's he created us. He's responsible to us. Um, 
tangent in my brain deciding whether to follow or not. I'll make it fast. You know, I don't know if any of you read the book Frankenstein and you don't have to, but it's, if you haven't read it, it's not what you thought it was. It's not a monster book. It's even, they talk about it being a ghost story that, that um, she was challenged to write a ghost story, but it's really not even a ghost story. There's no ghosts in it, but it's not a monster story either. What it is, is it's a philosophical treatise about the question of what responsibility does the creator have to the creation? Dr. Frankenstein creates this monster and creates this human sort of, and then abandons him. And the, the monster doesn't grunt. He speaks in long philosophical discourses and argues and says, you abandoned me. You have a responsibility to me. You created me. If I kill people, it's because you aren't, you aren't taking care of me. You got to teach me what to do. It's a, it's really fascinating. And obviously it's, it's a, it's a big philosophical sort of exploration of God's responsibility to us. And, and did he abandon us? And I love the fact that here in the gospel at this moment, what Jesus is reminding us is no, he didn't abandon us. In fact, he takes that responsibility as creator much more seriously than we would ever ask him to. And it's just fascinating to me that that's his mindset, that that's what he does. And so because of that, because he knows who he is, because he knows that he, because he wants to serve them. He's choosing, knowing that he's superior to them. He's choosing to serve them. He decides to wash their feet. We've talked about this before. So you probably all remember or know this from other teachings and readings. Washing feet at a table is not an uncommon thing. Um, when people came over and guests came over to your house, they either had sandals or they walked in bare feet. They walked on dirt paths and the primary mode of transportation other than walking was horses and horses use dirt paths to relieve themselves. And so walking in the dirt and the dust and the manure in your bare feet or in your sandals is a messy business. And so when you show up at someone's house, a lot of times you would recline when you ate. And if you're reclining, that means your feet are close to someone's head and close to the table. And some of you really hate feet. I hate to, you know, gross you out, but that's what was happening. So to make it less gross, it wasn't at all unusual to have the servants of the household, because again, who wants to do this except a servant? You, you would, you have the servants of the household wash the feet of your guests. It was just something you did. Even the anointing of Jesus' feet with perfume, it wasn't his feet that were anointed in the recent story, but you may remember other stories where his feet were anointed. That's also something that would happen, right? You make the feet smell better. And so it's not unusual to do this, but the situation here is Jesus is here with his apostles. They're about to have this nice meal. And who's going to wash their feet? They have no servants. They have nobody to wash their feet. They are in, they aren't even a guest in someone else's house. There is this guy who gave them the upper room, but it sounds like they're kind of renting it or, you know, it's not, he's not there hosting it. It doesn't sound like it's just, it's just a room that Jesus got permission to use. So who's going to wash their feet? And I think the expectation would be that if someone was going to do it, all the other apostles were probably thinking, you know, if Jesus asked me to do it, I'm going to be honored to do it because it's appropriate. I'm going to do it. You know, it makes sense that we should be doing it if anyone's going to do it. Maybe they thought no one would do it. They've been together three years, who knows, you know, but but that's kind of the situation here. So now here comes Jesus. He wraps a towel around his waist. It becomes clear what he's doing. He grabs a basin of water and he begins to walk up to wash their feet. And he comes to Simon Peter first. And Peter, I think, says with incredulity, he says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? This is a Peter moment where he's arguing with Jesus. This doesn't sound like an argument, but it is. He's saying, this isn't right. This is completely wrong. I should be washing your feet. I should be, you know, any of us should be washing your feet. You're the Messiah, at least. You're God. You're Lord. You're everything to us right now. 
I should be washing your feet. You can't wash my feet. This is wrong. Jesus, you've done it again. You seem to be a little out of step with social norms. And this is wrong. You can't do this. And he came to Simon Peter and said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, hearing what's really going on in Peter's mind. He says, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. I love how he's, he's being gentle. He's like, I don't want to get in an argument with you, Peter. You'll get it later. Just let me do it. But Peter being Peter is like, nope, no, not good enough. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. So Jesus is like, I know you don't understand. I know it seems weird, but you'll get it later. Because later you're going to see that I came to do more than wash your feet. I came to lay my life down for you. And you're going to see that. You're going to see the benefit. of it. You're going to see the need for that. You're going to understand what authority and responsibility and service and leadership really are all about. So just go with me now. You know, we've been through a lot. Can you just trust me on this? And Peter's like, nope. <laughs> One last moment of nope. Uh, two more, I guess. No, he says, I, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Look, Peter, the bottom line is I'm here to serve you. If you can't let me serve you in this, how are you going to let me serve you at salvation? If you won't let me serve you, you have nothing to do with me. This is a beautiful thing to remember that our Lord says, because sometimes we do think that that our biggest role with God is to work for him. Our biggest role with God is to serve him. Is it appropriate that we obey him? Of course, Jesus is going to make that point too. But he also wants to say to us, the only way that you have part with me, the way that you have any role with me at all, the way our relationship works is that you let me serve you. And if you let me serve you, then I cleanse you. Then I wash you just like I wash their feet. If you don't let me wash you, if you don't let me do that service, then there is no relationship. There is no role. There is no part for you. So don't think it's about you serving me first. It's about me serving you. Now, if after that you serve me, that there's appropriateness to that. And he talks about that. But it really, I think, is important that God is making this point. I'm here to serve you. That's how this relationship works. You don't think it's right, doesn't make sense to you, but you'll understand it later. And I do remember, and, and there's a lot of opinions about Mel Gibson these days, and he's a complicated person. Um, but I do remember the passion of Christ. And I remember, I will probably never watch the movie again. I liked it. I did like it. I thought it was a really good movie and well done. I don't think that I need to watch it again. But I do remember when I did watch it, what surprised me, the emotion that I felt that I wasn't expecting. There were a lot of things I expected, but the emotion that I felt that I didn't expect was embarrassment for Jesus, was a sense of this is wrong. He shouldn't be doing this. It's not right for him to, to die like this. We shouldn't be watching this. This is embarrassing. And I remember thinking that's probably how Peter felt. That's probably how Peter felt just from him wanting to wash his feet, let alone from him dying on the cross, that it just didn't seem right. And yet that is what our God says. This is what he does. Okay. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Well then, Lord, and again, this is Peter. He's all in or he's all out. And, and you know, Jesus made his point and Peter, to, bless Peter, he's all in. He says, then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. You know, just, just give me a bath. And that's cool because you say that this is necessary. Well, I want to be all in. And, and he doesn't know it, but he is saying the right thing and that he's saying, cleanse all of me. You know, you're right, Jesus, I don't just need my feet cleansed. I need you to cleanse all of me. And so Jesus probably really liked that answer. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath only need to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. Now, this might, this is a little bit metaphorical. It's also might be literal. It's also kind of like, it's okay, Peter. <laughs> it's, we don't need all that right now. And you are clean, though not every one of you. But I think he's also saying, but I have cleansed you. Because he says that later, that 
that there's a sense in which as they followed him and as he's spoken with them, their cleansing has already begun. Now, I, I understand theologically until he dies on the cross, they receive the Holy Spirit. Their cleansing isn't isn't really real. But 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 Jesus does put it that way in, in a couple of times from here for them here near the end that basically their cleansing has begun. They are the apostles there with him. He's already started their cleansing process. Um, and that's what he's saying to them too. No, look, you, you've been with me and you'll be with me and your cleansing will be complete for now. I'm just going to wash your feet. But by the way, not all of you are clean. Not all of you are really following me. Um, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that is why he said not everyone was clean. Jesus starts doing a, a weird thing. And I think it's weird. And I don't completely understand it. Um, unless he's just trying to prepare them. He begins to drop hints that one of them is going to betray him until eventually he says it outright. One of you will betray me. And then he seemingly tells them exactly who's going to betray him, but they don't see it or they don't hear it. It's unclear why when he tells them they don't get it. And maybe he says it really quietly. Maybe he only says it to John. Maybe he only says it to Judas. It's a little unclear. But I don't know why he's doing it at all. I'm not quite sure what the point of sort of dropping hints is. But he starts doing that. And this is one of them. You know, you're not all clean. And immediately they're like, whoa, what, what the heck is he talking about? Um, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. And I like how he goes on because I think he got a lot of blank looks. I think the truth was none of them understood why he had done it. So they're waiting. They're like, good, he's going he's gonna to explain it says, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Again, he's not minimizing who he is. I am your teacher. I'm smarter than you. I am wiser than you. And I am your Lord. I am over you. I get to, you You should obey me. You know, he's not He's not mincing words. He's not minimizing that. He's like, you You call me teacher, you call me Lord, and it's appropriately that, and it's appropriate that you do. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. But he says, think about this. If I am the, if I am superior to you, both in authority and frankly in every way, and I wash your feet, then what, what, where are you going to stand that, that's going to let you not wash each other's feet? How are you going to justify not serving each other at least as far as I served you? And this is really important because the apostles are they're 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 a ragamuffin group. They've grown a lot. They've learned a lot. But they still struggle sometimes with who's best, right? And 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 the little competition, you know, a little almost sibling rivalry around Jesus. And and I, he knows that when they go out to the world in the book of Acts, they're going to have to be different. They're going to have to love each other, and they're going to have to serve each other, and they're going to have to be willing to do that without ego. They're going to have to let that ego go. And and so that is what he's saying. You've seen me do it. Now you'll never be able to forget it. You will never have justification for treating each other any differently than I just treated you. Now that I, the Lord and your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. In other words, you're not greater than me. It isn't about that. You're not greater than me, yet I washed your feet. I'm greater than you, and because of that, I washed your feet is kind of what he's saying. But but to say to them, you're not greater than me, so I washed your feet. Therefore, stop worrying about with each other who should wash one another's feet. You should wash one another's feet. Just you. You love your neighbor. You be the neighbor. You know, it's back to the Good Samaritan story. So he's just trying to really drive this home. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So you've seen them. You know them. Guess what? Doing them will actually make you happy. Doing them will actually be good for you. Doing them will actually make the, the church work. It will make your leadership work. It will make the apostleship work. 
And he's totally right about all of that. The one of the most amazing things about the book of Acts is, is how, how well they do. Um, and, and because of the Holy Spirit, that is one of the clear messages of the book of Acts. But nonetheless, it is still very encouraging how well the apostles do, not just in reaching people, but in being what God is calling them to be right here, in serving each other, in loving each other, in working together, in letting their egos go. It's, it's really very impressive. Okay, Mark 14, we have the same story. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray you, one who is eating with me. So there it is. He just says it. But why? I'm not sure. But he does let them know. They were saddened. Of course they were. We're, 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 the, we're the group. We're the Avengers. We're together. You know, we're not going to fight each other. We're not going to betray you. That's crazy. We've been with you through everything. Remember when everybody else left? You know, we're still here. One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. So just to be clear, someone at this table, they were saddened and one by one, they said to him, surely you don't mean me. It's fascinating that this is their response. And I think there's two ways to read it. One is they're concerned that he's mistaken and is thinking that they're against him when they know they're not. So one is they're just trying to assure him, do you have bad information about me? But the other way to read this is that there's just enough insecurity as there is in all of us that they're like, you know, Jesus knows things that I don't know. He's shown me that over and over. Is it possible that I'm a bad guy and don't know it? I mean, I think there is possibly that insecurity too. But whichever it is, they're seeking reassurance from Jesus. So they're like, me? Do you mean me? You don't mean me. You can't mean me. And he just says, it's one of the 12. It is one of you. Not very helpful. He replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. Now, that sounds like a, a, that sounds like a slam dunk. I mean, a, a bread dunk. That sounds pretty easy. It's like, okay, we'll just watch and we'll see who dips bread into the bowl with Jesus. And and if that's all he means, you know, who's going to do it at the exact same time as me? Well, number one, it means Judas would probably avoid that if he could. And number two, it means that you could just watch for that. But they don't seem to because they don't seem to have any clearer idea of who the betrayer is. Even when the betrayer leaves them, it doesn't occur to them that he's gone to betray Jesus. So is it possible, and I say this here knowing that one of the other Gospels says it in a way that makes what I'm about to say less likely, but nonetheless, is it possible that what he's saying is something very generic, that he's really just saying one of the 12? Is it possible that because everybody is dipping in the same bowl, he's just saying, it's one of you? It's close enough to me to dip your bread in the bowl. You know, he's just reiterating that, yep, it's someone eating with me. It's someone at the table. If he is, that makes sense that they don't really know who he's talking about. So he says, the one who dips bread into the bowl with me, the son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Now, maybe one of the reasons Jesus is saying all this is because in his love and his compassion, even knowing that it's going to happen the way it's going to happen, maybe he's still trying to prod Judas away from it. I don't know. Um, it's, it's a little unclear. While they're eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. And again, you're right. If there's a Passover lamb, that's a much easier picture, right? <laughs> take and eat the Passover lamb. This is my body. This is me. So maybe there isn't because maybe it's not really Passover, but they're celebrating it as such. Take it, eat my body. This is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. This is all confusing. He's been talking about his death. Now they're, they're he said at one point, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. Now it's happening. They see now that it's clearly metaphor, but still this has got to be just troubling. Just everything about this meal is troubling. He washes their feet 
They're like, what is happening? He says, someone's going to betray me. They're like, is it me? Who is it? Now he's like, eat my body, drink my blood. This is not a comfy, cozy meeting of, you know, fellowship meal that they were hoping for, I think. It's just all very troubling. And and I think that he's in, he's intending on some level or knows that it will be because he knows what's coming is going to be very troubling. He says, truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So in the midst of the troubling, then he says this, though. He says, guess what? The next time I drink this, we'll be in the kingdom of God. The next time we do this together, we'll be in the kingdom of God. Well, that sounds really encouraging because, again, if they're thinking literal, they're thinking, whew, by the next meal, by the next evening meal, it'll be done. We'll be, it'll be over, which it is, but they don't know that yet, but what that means. But but by the next meal, the kingdom of God will have come. They, they may just be thinking, this is it. This is great. This is troubling, but it's also really hopeful because Jesus is saying we're about to enter the new kingdom. Of course, he's saying he's going to go away, which they don't get yet. He's going to get more clear about that later, but so far, I don't know how clear that is. Yes, Meredith. Well, that's what I was kind of wondering what he means by like kingdom of god does that mean like when everyone's like together in heaven or because i mean he like hangs out with him for like a little while after he's raised from the dead or does it mean like when he's raised from the dead then that's like it or something i think there's a couple right i think you mentioned all the possibilities one is that his death and resurrection means the kingdom of god has come the church is to to some degree the kingdom of god and so when he is even after his resurrection when he's eating with them that's a fulfillment that's one possibility the other is he does say in one of the other gospels something about i won't eat of this again until i eat of, of it with you in the kingdom of heaven and, and it may be that he is referring to the to the end times end times when he comes back and that that 40 days when he comes back to his resurrection are just sort of a parenthetical phrase and they don't count for this so it could go either way i don't i don't know for sure what he means yeah but well, i guess also too i mean he's been talking about the kingdom of heaven a lot and it still seems like kind of ambiguous through the whole gospels to me i don't know or maybe it's just me well he's definitely he's talked about it in a couple of different ways one way he's talked about it is that he is the kingdom of god that is one thing he said fairly consistently another is that he does keep saying it's different the kingdom of god is different than you expected and he keeps talking about how it's it, you know all those parables about how it's not at all what you thought it was it's slower and it's and it's more about, you know, it's it's the access is free and all these things that are different than they've heard. Um, and then there are times he talks about the end times. So I again, I think, I think, I think you get a lot of discussion about this for sure. But I think theologically, it is appropriate to see the church as the kingdom of God on one level, because we are, we are that kingdom. We're to live according to those principles. But it is, but that's also with an understanding that there will be a a bigger and more literal unfolding of the kingdom of God when the Lord returns, um, and so I think it can be one of those things that's fulfilled in two different ways, and both being true. And what is important, I think, about this message is really just that it will be with them. That that's something discernible is going to change between this meal and the next time I have a meal with you, whether that's in heaven or on earth. Something big is going to change, and I think that's sort of the main thing. Um, and that, and because of that, he wanted to have this one more meal with him. He kind of says that later. I wanted to at least have this meal before the big change. So I think that's part of the, part of the point. It says when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Uh, not unusual to sing a hymn at Passover, maybe unusual to sing a hymn at a normal meal. 
maybe this is a Passover meal a day early, who knows, but they sing a hymn and then they go out to the Mount of Olives, which is where he's been going, by the way. So they're, they're not too far again, in and out of Jerusalem. He went to the Mount of Olives and did all that preaching at one point. So that's where they go. When evening came, Matthew 26, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. That sounds a little more specific, but again, maybe not. Maybe he just means all of you have dipped your, your bread in the bowl, so it could be any of you. I, I'm not sure. Again, if, if, he, if it's specific, I don't know why they don't know it's Judas, but this is what he says. The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of Now, I will say I read a book. Jim Bishop, if you've never read it, Jim Bishop wrote a book called The Day Christ Died. Jim Bishop is actually a historian years ago. He wrote a book called The Day Lincoln Was Shot and The Day Kennedy Died. And he wrote them and he got a lot of acclaim for them because they're thoroughly researched. And he said, by his own words, he wrote those two books to show he could do good history so that when he wrote The Day Christ Died, people would pay attention. So then he wrote a little book called The Day Christ Died, where he goes through his own chronology, his understanding of how all this plays out. And when he gets to this passage, he does he says that he thinks what happened is that Jesus just said this very quietly under his breath, and the only person who heard him was Judas. It doesn't say that, but it's as reasonable an explanation as any. Um, the one who's dipped his hand in the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely you don't mean me, rabbi. And Jesus answered, you have said so. Now, again, it does seem like he has to say that quietly to Judas because I, the apostles don't react. They aren't like, Judas, stop him. Or, you know, Peter would probably have been happy to take down Judas at that moment. Um, and none of that happens. And then when he leaves, they're all like, oh, I guess he went to do something important. None of them are like, oh, he went to betray Judas, like Jesus just said. So somehow in all this conversation, they are not hearing these key moments that we're hearing. And maybe Judas is, but but they're not. Yes, Meredith. Well, I mean, it's not that much different than Jesus has, than the way Jesus has spoken, like, you know, throughout the Gospels, and like, when he's talking about the Pharisees or other people, or just in general, you know, he's, it's very kind of like, cloaked, and I mean, I don't know if that's the right word, but you know, like, not as like, obvious and right there, and he definitely isn't like, accusatory, or I, I, I think you're right. What confuses me is a couple of things seem not cloaked, like, you know, watch who's going to dip their bread with me or or Judas. Yeah. Says, He's like, yep, you said it. Those don't seem cloaked. Those are the ones that confuse. Yeah. Me. But I think you're right. And I think it does make sense to assume that those are said quietly to Judas and that that's why no one else responds. Um, I, yeah. but I, I mean, I'm not trying to give a thing for this. I'm just saying it's yeah. not that much different than how right. Jesus has been talking. No, you're right. You're right about that. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Luke 22, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So 
could be that this is the explanation of why they're eating a Passover early, right? Because he's saying to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He might be like, why are we eating Passover a day early, Jesus? And he's like, well, because I'm going to suffer. And I really wanted to do this before I suffer. Otherwise, why is he calling it Passover? We're back to all that same confusion. So that's one possibility is he's explaining why they're doing a Passover meal in a non-kosher time in a non-kosher way, kind of. I mean, I'm sure it's kosher in other ways. Um, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who's going to betray me is with mine on the table. The son of man will go as it has been decreed but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which was considered the greatest. This is so weird. Uh, yes, go ahead, Meredith. You can finish your thought if you want. You don't have to stop no, in the no, middle of thought. No, go ahead. Well, I was thinking too, like with the Judas thing, and I don't know if this is like a thing or not, but um, I mean, it does show us some things. Like it shows us that Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed, that he's still doing these things for Judas, even though he knows that he's going to be betrayed. And so, I mean, it still is like, and he's still giving Judas the opportunity, you know, to do something different, which are all like characteristics of who Jesus is. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. That's a powerful point that he that he hands out the cup and says, this is for the forgiveness of sins for all of you. And Judas is included. Yeah, I, I agree. That's actually a very powerful point. I, I, I think that's a good catch. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, all I was going to say is this is weird and not weird. You know, one moment they're insecure and they're asking about, am I being betrayed? After Jesus went ahead and washed their feet and told them, let go of your egos. And the next thing they're like, well, I'm greater than you. It just is, it, it, it's kind of weird, but it's kind of not. You can see how that conversation would go. It's like, well, are you going to betray me? Why would I betray him? I walked on water. What are you talking about? You know, I saw the transfiguration, you know, and all of a sudden they've gone from insecurity to, you know, insecurity but masked as boasting um so a dispute arose among them as to which was considered to be the greatest jesus said to them the king of the gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors but you are not to be like that instead the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves for who is greater the one who is at the table or the one who serves is it not the one who is at the table but I am among you as the one who serves look you know I'm greater than you and yet I'm choosing to serve you should do the same. The Gentiles won't understand. They don't do it that way. People who rule over you won't understand. They don't do it that way. I'm telling you, be different. Don't be like them. Be like me. Um, but I am among you as one who serves. You You are those who have stood by me in my trials. So this little, little affirmation to them, right? They're also insecure in their arguing. So he's like, look, you've been here. I get it. Um, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me. So yes, you're going to be part of the kingdom, but understand this is how the kingdom works. Let your egos go. I, I affirm you. You've been here. Good job. You're all good in that regard. But but understand that in the kingdom, the one at the table is greater than the one who serves, and yet I choose to serve. So be that person. That's what it means to be in the kingdom. Um so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Uh, lots of discussion about the literal nature of this and the end times will that the the apostles actually judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, could be, I don't actually even know what that means, if that is true. So I'm just going to leave that where it is. Um, John 13, I am not referring to all of you. I know those who I have chosen. So that now he's being specific. Again, I think Meredith's right. When he hands out the cup, the forgiveness of sins, he's he's applying that to Judas if Judas wants it. But when he talks about ruling over the judging the 12 tribes of Israel, ruling in the end times, you know, having that kingdom. He's not talking about Judas because he knows Judas is going to choose to not be part of the kingdom. He's going to choose to betray the king. Uh, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those who I've chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. Now that explains why he would keep saying it too. If he's saying it partly so that they know it's a fulfillment of prophecy. Um, he who has shared my bread has turned against me. But here it's also much more broad, right? And someone at my table, someone who's eaten with me, someone who's fellowshiped with me, someone who shared meals with me is going to turn against me. That's a much more broad fulfillment than this person who dipped the bread in at the same time I did. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. That Those prophecies are about the Messiah. I'm telling you that's what's happening now. So when you look back, you'll say, oh, Jesus was the Messiah. It wasn't a failure that he was betrayed. It was actually part of what had to happen. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Accept me, accept the Father. If you accept, you, if they accept you, they're accepting me. That's how it works. Um, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit. So, you know, all of this is happening. It's just reminding us he is human. He's like, oh, man, this is heavy. This is a heavy, heavy meal. This is a heavy day. Uh, after he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, probably John, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter mentioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. So John's right there, right next to Jesus. Peter's like, ask him, you ask him, you're right there. What's he mean? Who is this going to be? Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread, which I have dipped in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas. I don't get it. Why is John not like, Peter, it's Judas. I don't understand. Did Jesus, I just don't get it. I don't understand, but I'll leave it because I don't, I don't get it. Uh, then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him what you're about to do, do quickly. I think one way to read all these together is that Jesus was, you know, giving Judas opportunity, inviting him into the kingdom, giving him the bread, giving him the cup, giving him the blood, saying, I know that you're going to do it, saying, Judas, I know what you're up to, right? If nothing else, he's telling Judas, I know what you're doing. I know what you've already done. I know you've already talked to them. There is an opportunity here, like a like a father who's kind of with his child, knowing his child has done something, and the child knows the father knows, but the child won't quite admit it and confess to it. And so there's just like this, this back and forth, and all the father's waiting for is for the child to confess, but he doesn't. And that's kind of what's happening here, I think. And so then Jesus is like, look, I'm this is painful. Just do it. If you've already made your decision, do it. Do what you're going to do, whatever you're going to do. If you're going to betray me, betray me. If you're not going to betray me, then let's get this over with. But he is, and Jesus knows that. Whatever you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. No one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him, including John, to whom he just said, whoever I give this bread to is betraying me. Uh, so I don't know. But for some reason, John was, was clueless at this moment. He was veiled, whatever. He didn't hear him. I don't know. Um, since Judas had charge of the money, and, and again, even though they know 
there's talk of betrayal, even as Judas leaves, it doesn't even occur to them that what he's doing is going to betray Jesus. It says this, since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival. Go do what you need to do quickly. Go buy stuff. I don't even think the tone was probably that, but again, they're, they're just not seeing it. Or to give something to the poor. As soon, soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. And we'll go ahead and stop there. From there, we have long discourses from Jesus. So chapters 13, 14, 15, maybe 16 are these long discourses from Jesus. John gives us much more insight, uh, information really, into the conversations Jesus has at this last meal than the other gospel writers do. They skip over all the rest of this. Um, but it is really fascinating to see what John remembers and to see what what resonated with John from this last these last moments. And they really are the last moments. Judas is gone. The, the plan is in, in motion now. Um, there's It's like when Jesus says, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. It's kind of like, that's the moment of no return. It's like, okay, we've, we've crossed the tipping point. It's happening. It's absolutely happening. And it's happening tonight. Yeah, tonight. So my understanding here is that we're, I think, we're now in Wednesday. Or we're, yeah, we're now, actually, we're now up to Thursday, actually. We're, we've hit Wednesday sunset. Now we're on the Wednesday to Thursday time, which is why I think I moved to Thursday being crucifixion. There are some people who argue that that a lot of things happen here still on Wednesday, but I don't know how you, I couldn't quite get all that to make sense in my head. So, but regardless, the, the evening is coming. There's going to be a trial in the middle of the night, which is completely unlawful, according to Jewish law. The Sanhedrin's uh, quiet, midnight, isolated, secretive meeting is completely unlawful. It's illegal. Nothing that comes of that should have meant anything. Jesus could have, in fact, made a real stink about that and said, you can't legally do anything to me. You're, you violated your own law in the way you dealt with me. But we'll see that next week. Um, but it was worth it to them because, why? Because they wanted to get it done before Passover, which I think is happening the next day. And they wanted to get it done when the crowds weren't around. And that's why Judas could betray him in the middle of the night, because he could find him in the middle of the night, and he does. Um, anyway, that's where we are. We'll read the discourses from Jesus from Jesus next week, and then we'll get to that probably the actual crucifixion the week after. Um, any questions, any comments, any thoughts on anything from today? I mean, it is weird that they like didn't understand that Judas was like betraying Jesus, but they didn't even really like they haven't even really accepted his death yet. You you are correct. I mean, there's a degree to which maybe this is just sort of denial, right? Denial and willful blindness. And and when I said maybe John didn't hear him, I, I kind of wonder if that's true in a sense that 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 John asked Jesus, John is recording this, right? So he's recording that he asked Jesus something and Jesus answered him and then Jesus showed him. But is it possible that John only sort of recalled all that after the fact? That he was like, oh, wait, that's what happened. I didn't understand what was happening. I didn't quite catch what Jesus was saying, you know, but then he puts it together and he's like, oh, now I see he did answer me. I thought he didn't answer me. I thought he was, you know, it's possible because John's recording in hindsight, right? So maybe it yeah. wasn't before so i think you make a point that when he adds a lot john adds a lot like later like he adds the explanation for sure like from a well and also too i mean when they hear that jesus like has risen they like didn't 
necess- they didn't really believe it until they actually went there and saw it. So, yeah, right. No, you're right. I I accept that a lot of it can just be sort of a denial and a complete incomprehension in a and an overwhelming meal where so much is going on that things are being said that they're just completely missing. That's entirely plausible. Yeah. No, I'm just throwing things out there. I'm not trying to be yeah. like writer. No, I'm, or something. I'm, I'm, no, it's good. I'm I'm just agreeing with your your train of thought makes sense to me. Um, any anybody else? Any other comments or thoughts? So sure. it says then Satan entered him. And do you think that's kind of because I know we've talked about that before and kind of the Jewish way of saying that because God is sovereign like the that happened and so that's kind of the way to like explain like the evil and stuff like that i mean yes that doesn't make it also true i mean i i think that it's not a way that we talk and i don't understand all the ins and outs of of spiritual warfare and so do i think that means that you know he, he was head spinning you know split pea soup vomiting uh possessed no because i'm don't see a lot of that in scripture. You see some of that, but not a lot of, well, not spoopy, but you, you see some of that. That probably would have even been more obvious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then, then they'd be like, what? Um, but I think it's interesting that, that's that, yeah, it says that at both key moments when he goes to the Pharisees and says, I want to betray him. And then when he leaves to actually go do it, um, it, it says that Satan entered him. And, and I think at the same time, the the Jews also it's also written very much in a way where Judas is making decisions. You know, he's like, "Go do what you yeah. need." And so I do think that is that is, and by saying it, it doesn't mean it isn't right. It just means it's 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 a little bit awkward for us to understand. I think because we don't think this way, or maybe we should. But but I think that for them, there's no disconnect in saying Judas made a choice to portray Jesus, and Satan entered Judas to push him to portray Jesus. To them, those are both true at once. And that God in his sovereignty, you know, allowed Satan to enter Judas to portray Jesus. All of those things happen, and to them, they're all true all the time. And I I think that's probably a realistic picture of the world. It's just hard for me personally, I, I won't say us even, it's hard for me personally to kind of wrap my mind around that in the way that they do. Well, we have seen a similar thing, like in other parts of the Bible, like, you know, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh made all these choices and. Yeah, for sure. um, And other things like Hezekiah. Yeah. The classic one for me is where it's clear from the context that Saul makes some really bad choices not to trust God. And then it says, yeah, sent an evil spirit to Saul. And that one's, that's like God sent it, but it was an evil spirit, but Saul was making choices. So it's the same kind of thing where all three things are true at once for the Jews. They don't have any problem. They don't seem to have any problem with it. Maybe they wrestled with it too, but they, they seem to accept it in a way that I wrestled, not, not wrestle with like, I don't believe it, but wrestle with like, I'm not quite sure I understand how that all works. Like all the logistics of it. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe I have, a maybe I don't believe it in a sense. I think I do, but maybe I don't um yeah no yeah i'm kind of there too and it just seems like yeah kind of weird like yeah but it does seem clear that god that jesus gave that judas had like every chance to trust and follow i mean if you think about it he had more more exposure to who jesus was than everybody except 11 other people <laughs> you know I mean, he, he got well this- and even if he had like repented like even at that time you know i mean 
the Pharisees still knew Jesus still, you know, that had been crucified and everything. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Not um, that that would have been anything anyway for God, but. <laughs> oh, I agree. I agree. It helps my little brain. <laughs> well, and even Jesus' statement that it will happen to the Messiah like it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Jesus is going to die. That doesn't matter. But woe to the person who chooses to be the person to make it happen. That's very similar to what um, Mordecai says to Esther. You know, God yeah. is going to happen. The Jews will be saved one way or the other. But where, you know, but woe to you if you don't step in here where you have a chance to. So it, it feels like, again, that combination of God's sovereignty and our choice, you know, God's plan is going to go through. But, but what we do still matters and the choices we make are still relevant. Thank you for joining us. The Journey is a ministry of Discipleship Matters, which is an extension of Focus Church and is created by David McGill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches. If you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by David, you can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.